was a great way to uh, lead into the message. Um, I kind of wanted to cut it just because of some time constraints that I learned that we have after the first service, but it's just such a, uh, really a perfect segue to a lot of things. And I don't know how many of you are used to watching the, what we call focal point. Um, it's part of our, was part of our 750, we're moving to 750 initiative. And it's just a, a, a couple of minute video. Usually this week it's like a minute and 44 seconds long, um, that I do almost weekly. I've been pretty good about getting those done and in. Uh, but the one this week in particular is exactly exemplifies the heart and the theme of this song as well as this church. And that's about all I'm going to tell you. But again, uh, if, if you're not used to seeing that, if you're on Facebook, it's always posted on Facebook. Once I see it, I repost it to, uh, to my timeline. Is that the new you know, timeline wall, whatever it used to be? Um, you can get it there. But if you don't have Facebook, you can get it at our website, I think. Where's Ben? I was going to check with that. I think it's posted on our website, fefchurch.org. Okay. So, and I'm going to encourage you to really make a point to look at it because it's kind of a surprise revelation. And I say surprise more, more to uh, me and Janet and a few others in the body, but not really once you hear what it's about. It's about our, our impacting our community for the Lord, and in a minute and 44 seconds, like I say, it'll give you a tip-off as to what we're trying to discern as to where God may be moving, um, even though it's an area of ministry that you're going to go, are you kidding me? We've been doing that for, for years to one degree or another, and it's right, we have. Um, but if this, if the Lord, again, like in Kosovo, happens to move and orchestrates things in, uh, in a way that would facilitate our going uh, into this vision that we have, um, I think it's pretty exciting. It's something, again, that we've had on our radar screen for probably almost, yeah, at least 15 years anyway. So there you go. Leave it mysterious enough to hopefully be an enticement to uh, make sure you do that. Well, I don't know how many of you are, uh, are, are familiar with the phrase uh, when people, the, uh, theologians usually, or liberal uh, theologians, religionists, uh, TV shows that you see on TV that purport to be about the Bible or about Jesus and everything else. And you hear this phrase called the historical Jesus. And you know, things are so, uh, 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 have declined so far down in this country as compared to Kosovo, where they have far more religious freedom than they do here. Can you imagine this, this 90 plus percent Muslim country has the Muslim president of parliament speaking at the opening ceremony of this Christian church. And, I mean, it's like, yeah, boy, you talk about being a post-Christian nation here. Okay. But all that is to say is that when we hear things on TV about the historical Jesus, we think, oh, all right, finally, hey, let's watch this. Let's see what it's about. They're talking about the historical Jesus, which, which by itself implies they're talking about a real individual, not a symbol of our Christian faith, but a real person. So, hey, this has got to probably be pretty good. And so we listen to it. And if you're not real discerning, you can be sucked right into it. So I'm going to unsuck you into it and get you out of that and tip you off as the introduction to the message this morning. First of all, whenever you hear this name, the, the phrase historical Jesus, there ought to be this little buzz thing that goes, danger, warning. More than likely, almost entirely, crud is coming, okay? The historical Jesus has to do with liberal theology 
where they at least acknowledge that there was a real human being named Jesus, but he's characterized as this poor itinerant who had a great heart. He was a good man. He was, you know, a, a poor itinerant, though, who went around the countryside uh, preaching peace, love, dove, and, and all of that sort of thing, and compassion, and community, and no judgment, and forgiveness, and all those good things which have certainly biblical foundations to them. But they are not talking about the Jesus of Scriptures, as I'm going to illustrate from their own lips. According to them, the historical Jesus, in a nutshell, if you will, was basically this victim of circumstance who was a pawn who got caught in this political crossfire. And this poor unfortunate man, good though he was, ended up being executed because of what were political issues and strife in the day. All right, going to... Not the source, but certainly a source from pbs.org. PBS is spelled NPR, right? And it's from the broadcast, I think they have this called Frontline, or maybe it's a television show called Frontline. Okay, so this is, this is, again, this is from them. It's from their website. And by the way, I'm going to mention a few names in here in passing as I'm reading verbatim. But don't get caught up on them. They are theolo- various theologians uh, that they are citing in the article. And I say that because they only give a last name as if you know what they're talking about. All right. The historical Jesus and the Jesus of the early church bear little resemblance to one another. Right there ought to be enough to say, okay, checking out, pile of, you know what. Even more tenuous is the connection between the historical Jesus and later Christianity. The emphasis on Jesus' divinity has often been eclipsed by his humanity. Many church controversies focused on creedal issues, meaning creeds, meaning doctrines, such as Jesus' relation to the Father. From the 19th century on, much scholarly debate has swirled around such supernatural elements of the Jesus story as the virgin birth and the resurrection. Yet the human Jesus leaves hints of having been a very human indeed, uh, being very human indeed, a colorful sort, more given to feasting than fasting, and hanging around with disreputable types of which his family probably disapproved. I love their their pretense of omniscience there to be able to see into historical situations of which there's no historical record for it. Just a little side note, no charge for the editorial. John the Baptist exerted tremendous influence over Jesus and his message. Huh? While contemporary scholars would acknowledge that the relation with the Baptist is one of the most likely authentic pieces of the gospel tradition... Meyer develops, one of those theologians I mentioned, Meyer develops the idea that Jesus was probably part of the Baptist's early circle, and his fiery apocalyptic theology was a constant in Jesus' own ministry. In other words, Jesus got a lot of his ideas from John the Baptist. When Jesus left the circle of the Baptist to start his own ministry, he seems to have taken some of the Baptist followers with him. Nothing new under the sun, right? Jesus' view of himself differed widely from the early churches. Now, buckle in your seatbelt. You may fall out of your chair. 
Whether he saw himself as the Messiah is debatable, but he almost certainly did not see himself as divine. As Bork puts it, if one of Jesus' disciples had spoken of him with the words of the Nicene Creed, let me read you just a brief of that because I don't expect you to know that. We're more familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Basically pretty much similar, but let me just read a snippet of it. Here's the Nicene Creed to which he's referring. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Okay, it's a great creed, by the way, all right? So there it is. Now let me reread the sentence as the scholar Bork puts it. If one of Jesus' disciples had spoken of Jesus with the words of the Nicene Creed, one can only imagine Jesus saying, What? I'm telling you, it's what it says. Sanders, point another scholarly theologian, poignantly remarks that Jesus may have died a disappointed man. The earliest gospel reports his final cry from the cross to be one of utter despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whether historical or not, we cannot be sure, but it points to the element of tragedy in his death. (laughs) Mind blown. This blasphemous article by the folks at PBS, are the kind to who Jesus refers in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, when you take it with Matthew chapter 6, are two pretty long chapters talking about kingdom life and how a true follower of Christ ought to have their faith bear on their the everyday realities of life around them. And so Jesus goes down almost in these, in these uh, 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 bullet points of, you know, how the kingdom life relates to prayer and relates to finances and relates to fasting and relates to love and relates to forgiveness and all this. In the context of all of that, this is where Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is talking about those scholarly theologians who have taken the beautiful pearls of Scripture and thrown them into the dung heap. Now, in the Christian liturgical calendar, that is sort of the church calendar, or some of you grew up in a more high church format, Roman Catholicism, uh, Episcopalian, uh, many others like that, they, they have a, a liturgical calendar, meaning it shows all the, the there's many more church uh, observances, holidays, if you will, uh, celebrations during the year than just, Resurrection Sunday and Christmas, all right? And so according to the liturgical calendar, today is what most people would know as being Palm Sunday out of that particular tradition. And Palm Sunday comes from the fact not of the high fives with your palms, although in a way, that's what was going on with the triumphal ride into Jerusalem, which is also what Palm Sunday is often called. But for all of that being said, the fact is, is that we are in first Samuel, which is in the Old Testament. And so what we're going to have to do to get back to 1 Samuel, to take it in view of 
Palm Sunday or the triumphal ride of Jesus into Jerusalem is we're going to have to hop into Mr. Whoopi's Wayback Machine and travel back in time. And again, we want to keep in mind what Pastor Brent was talking about last Sunday about careful preaching. And so I have been honestly wrestling. This has been one of the nastiest, when I'm done, you might go, yeah, I agree. One of the nastiest sermons that I have been preparing for as far as the time and the confusion myself and and trying to not force a round theology into a square theological hole, not to make anything contrived or what have you, but truly to look at how Scripture interprets Scripture with a view towards seeing Old Testament, New Testament, again, in that confluence of uh, of God's thoughts throughout history. And so, again, we're going to go way back about 930 years earlier to where I think that I have a legitimate take on all that we've been talking about with the coronation of King Saul and Palm Sunday. So, we're going to press on. Now, remember again, we're going to press on because if we get too myopic, we may be camping out in the middle of the, you know, the Redwood National Forest and we can't see the trees that we're camped under because we're just so engulfed by the bigger picture. So, from before the foundations of the earth, we, I think, should understand by this point in time that, that God knew exactly what the plight of man was going to be. And he knew because of that exactly how the garden paradise at Eden was going to be relatively or very short-lived due to the abject rebellion of Adam and Eve against the counsel of their creator. But God the Father had the rescue of mankind already in place. And so the scriptures tell us that Jesus, in his post-resurrection body, he had been... uh, beaten, he'd been uh, crucified, he'd been killed, but now he has risen from the dead, but he hasn't yet got, gone back into heaven. And so he's alive and well, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, but they are kept from seeing who he is. And Jesus says to them that beginning with Moses, or rather the, uh, Matthew tell, Luke tells us, sorry, that beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, Jesus explained to the disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Well, what were all the scriptures? See, we get, we are so used to having this that we read that as, oh yeah, they have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, verses. No, there was no New Testament yet. So Jesus uses the Old Testament to explain to the disciples who he is, saying that they have always been ever only about me ultimately. So the critics of the day are making their presence known as they were from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, coming against him in every way, shape, and form. And Jesus exclaims to them on numerous occasions, calling them out, basically telling them, you know what, your issue really isn't with me. Your issue is with unbelief. Your issue is hardness of heart. Because Jesus says to them in John chapter 546, if you believed Moses... Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the very first five books of the Bible. He says, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because they wrote about, or he, Moses, wrote about me. So they had no excuse to be rejecting the Messiah. Their problem was unbelief. 
And so the all-knowing God informs us too through the Apostle Paul that while the hints and the revelation of God having the salvation of mankind already worked out tells us that even though there were thousands of years between then and Jesus' incarnation, Paul tells the church at Rome that while we were still helpless, meaning helpless to do anything to save ourselves, at just the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly, you and me. The fulfillment of God's plan of rescue of wayward humanity was first announced, as I said, albeit veiled, right there in the book of Genesis. And then thousands of years later, as Paul says, at just the right time, a star points the way to the place. And a multitude of angels appears announcing the arrival of the world's Savior. And now, 33 years down that timeline from His birth, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem in what I'm going to say was effectively man's coronation of Christ. Or the human coronation of the Christ. So this morning what I want to do is I want us to study the coronation of Saul... 930 years earlier, and the coronation of Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament comparing and contrasting two stories, two different historical epics, two kings, one hapless and helpless, and the other being very focused and fulfilling. So back in 1 Samuel, again, thanks to Mr. Whoopi, Saul gets sidetracked from the all-important mission of looking for some lost animals. The mission on which Saul's father dispatched him and a servant to were two men in search of donkeys. And in the course of all of that, clueless Saul runs into the high priest Samuel, who's going to attempt to give Saul a clue. In 1 Samuel 9, 25 through 27, it tells us about that meeting between Samuel and Saul. And Samuel calls Saul up to the place and he tells him, look, you stay here and you wait for me because I'm going to come and I'm going to tell you that all that God has in plan for this supposedly chance meeting when you thought you were out looking for donkeys, but instead you were looking to be, you were, God was bringing you to be put in touch with me to bring you to the kingship. So Samuel proclaims to Saul that he is there to anoint Saul as the first king of God's people. And as we discovered again a few weeks back, the apparent mission that Saul thought he was on, searching for donkeys, was not the mission. And when the real time came to introduce the new king to his subjects now, he's been anointed by Saul. He's been announced as the king to various different regions. And when it comes now for his formal sort of public coronation and unveiling, where is Saul? He's hiding. Literally, he was hiding. And it's not exactly the image you want of your newly appointed national leader. (laughs) And let's remember too, that the one hiding had been chosen by the people by popular acclaim. Because he was tall, he was strong, and he was handsome. And with these remarkable qualifications, the people determined that he was exactly the kind of warrior king that they would need to lead them mightily into victory. But now again, we're going to jump around and we're going to leave this hapless king for a minute. And again, with the luxury of time travel, we're going to be jumping into yet another time machine that looks strangely like a DeLorean. And we're going to go back to the future 
again, a little over 900 years from where Saul is, to the coronation of a different king. And with the improvement of Mr. Fusion, we won't need to worry about generating 1.21 gigawatts of power into the flux capacitor to accomplish our move to the future. Some of you are going, what the heck just happened to the pastor? Did his train go off the rails? If you don't know, you're lost. Matthew chapter 21, hopping in that DeLorean, heading up. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anybody says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkeys in the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, palm trees, hence Palm Sunday, and were spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna is just a transliteration. That means taking the actual language and putting it in English uh, linguistic form that we can say it, but is from the original of Hoshia. Nah. And it's literally a begging. It is a plea with God Almighty saying, Lord, save us. Please save us now. And so they exclaimed, Hosanna. And there were some Mainers in the crowd exclaiming, Hosanna. (laughs) That was a marginal reading. I'm not sure about that. Now, coincidentally... Or should I say by great design? Yes, I should say by great design. Saul's coronation ceremony commenced with a search for a donkey by two men. Saul and his servant. With Saul, he's the son who's now being commissioned by his father, all of which was a grand design using some donkeys putting Saul in touch with Samuel the prophet, as I already mentioned. And the purpose of all that was to bring about God's purposes for his special people. 900 years later, another donkey search is underway to be used in the coronation of another king, this one, the king of kings. Jesus, the son of God, coming to do the bidding of his father, always as he says in John chapter 6:38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Like Saul's mission, this donkey search has ultimately also been commissioned by the Father, God the Father, for His Son to bring about God's purposes, namely the grand plan of salvation for God's special people. So again, we have two coronations, two kings, two fathers, two sons, and some donkeys. Saul was an uncertain, even unclueless pawn in an orchestrated scheme To bring about God's purposes for his people in the world. The donkey search utilizing two men was God's way of putting Saul in touch with Samuel who would bring about the revealing of Saul as king. 
Jesus, on the other hand now, was very focused. Jesus was certain. He was the certain King of Kings, knowingly fulfilling Scripture, the Father appointing two men to search for a specific donkey with meticulous attention to detail at the very act of this minor detail was one more segment in the promise of the ages all the way from Eden forward to mankind coming to pass. Let's not forget it was God the Father who sent Jesus the Son to earth. Jesus subsequently sends two men to search for a donkey. Not so Jesus could make a grand entrance as happened on this day, as it's called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as much as Jesus serving, or I should say actually God the Father, serving to bring about the transportation of bringing the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world into town for what would end up being the sacrifice of all sacrifices. Assuming the throne over Jesus' rightful kingdom was never the point. The apparent mission called the triumphal entry was never the mission. The mission was to bring about the beginning of the end of what Jesus had come to earth to accomplish in the first place. Two kings, two coronations, two outcomes. As we look at Saul, we see that Saul was embraced by the masses for looking kingly. Again, in 1 Samuel 9, we are told point blank that he was handsome and he was taller than all the other men from his shoulders up. Jesus was embraced by the few despite not looking kingly. The prophet Isaiah says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should even be attracted to him. Saul was embraced while being rather impotent. Saul was ready to throw in the towel on his all-important national security issue of finding some lost donkeys. And when it didn't happen in a few days, he said, that's it, let's go back home. Jesus was embraced while being God incarnate, come to give his life as a sacrifice. When Saul was dragged out of hiding to be crowned by the masses, he was jeered by some who the scriptures there uh, call, translating the Hebrew as worthless fellows. It's really a, a much more derogatory word than uh, worthless words than worthless fellows. But understandably, I kind of feel their pain. Really? This knucklehead's going to be our king? And you had to get him out of hiding from the bags? I get that, but God had grander purposes and grander things for Israel. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was crowned to the cheers of the worthless masses. For there is none who is worthy, no, not one. None who seeks after God. Saul was crowned for what the people presumed he would do. Jesus was crowned for what he had already done. The triumphal entry now on this Palm Sunday comes pretty much at the apex of Jesus' public ministry. And all of the miracles that were attendant and all the things that he had done by that time, healing the blind, the deaf, and the dumb, and, and just days, days ago were the feeding of the multitudes miraculously. And then his piece de resistance was raising Lazarus from the dead. That all happened right before 
this triumphal entry. Saul was acclaimed by the will of the people. God, unfortunately, giving the people what they wanted. Jesus was acclaimed by the will of the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Two kings, one very flawed, one absolutely perfect. Both entirely, though, in their places to do the will of their Father, whether realizing it or not, in Saul's case. One knowingly and embracing it, The other one clueless and running from it. So now, again in the fullness of time back in Saul's day, some 900 years before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we know him as the king of kings. Now the first king of God's people is going to come and sort of finally put on his kingly robes because there is this first national crisis since being king. It's been announced that they are that Israel is going to be under attack by one of their arch enemies, the Ammonites. And so the people are looking for this new king who is going to be the assurance of all their victories. And they find him out plowing in his field as he's just finishing up his farm work. Now, as we proceed here very quickly, remember that one of the big differences I mentioned several weeks ago between Old Testament and New Testament is the way in which the Holy Spirit operates. In the Old Testament, or rather in the New Testament, the Spirit was given on the ascension of Jesus for the purpose of permanently abiding with everyone who's a genuine follower of Christ. Meaning, once you believe the Holy Spirit is given, that Spirit is there to stay. In the Old Testament, on the other hand, because Jesus hadn't come and the Spirit couldn't be given like that until Jesus had come and accomplished all that he needed to accomplish. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to individuals as God determined the need for the moment. And so now in the national crisis and Saul in his first sort of uh, calamity that's facing them, the Spirit is needed at the moment. And in 11.6, we read that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul mightily. And when he heard about the attack and that it was imminent, he became very angry. This is an anger that is inspired by God. For the first time we're aware of, Saul actually acts like a king. And he's able to muster up, as a king would, a new army, or at least a a reinforcement for his current army, of 330,000 men. And this Saul, remember now, the Holy Spirit of God is on him who couldn't think his way through the finding of some lost donkeys, now devises a ruse, and they actually end up defeating, against all odds, the Ammonites. Back to chapter 10, verse 27 in 1 Samuel. Remember those detractors, those worthless men, who once Saul was coronated, despised him. Well, now the masses, now they've got this new king, he showed his stuff. You know, maybe they were they were a little hesitant themselves. Yeah, our king is hiding himself. What does this mean? I don't know. But we got to be jubilant because he looks good, man. We got to stay behind him. So now he's got this big wind behind him. And now the people of Saul's day, they're feeling their Cheerios, man. And they're feeling their oats. And now they go, yeah, where are those worthless men that were jeering him? And they want to go find those guys and they want to have them executed. And Saul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, 
This is a great day of victory and celebration. Let's not worry about it today. Just let him be. Let him go. 930 years later, as Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem, the people embrace their new king. And they too, because again, we're coming off the the pinnacle of all of Jesus' miracles and wonders and signs. And they too are fired up and they're also feeling their vinegar now, boy. They knew the prophecies from of old about the coming Redeemer, about the Messiah. And in their understanding of those prophecies, of those promises of God, what God was going to do when the Messiah came was the Messiah was going to come and then He was going to usher in the kingdom. Meaning, all the centuries of oppression by other governments and other peoples and all the current oppression in the day of Jesus by the Roman government and the the injustices that were taking place, all of that was going to be righted finally and those dastardly people were going to get what they had come to them finally and so they're like yes here he is he's there he looks like every everything's just in place and this is going to happen and they're beside themselves being giddy with seeing the fulfillment of those promises their swagger is showing that makes sense honestly i mean there are some things that make sense about faith and circumstance right one of those things is that when life is going our way when life is going the way we think it should be playing out boy we, we tend to be pretty robust in our faith even even actually you know at times even living like paul says we are like not just conquerors but more than conquerors because we've been we've been energized and our faith has been strengthened on the other hand when life is not going well sooner probably than later Our faith tends to wane and our knees become weaker and weaker. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of his adoring fans, believing the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah and the King has come to restore them as the rightful rulers of the world. The next thing they know, Jesus is going toe-to-toe again with the civil magistrates and the government and the religious leaders of the day. And he's ticking them off when he says anything. And most of the time, he's not even saying anything. And there's this huge deflation. Because it's like the one who we thought was going to bring it about. Now he, 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 he's looking as impotent as Saul was way back when. Jesus, say something, do something. When things were going great, they were shouting, Hosanna. And now, one in particular, but many effectively. One in particular says, Jesus? Who? Ah, Jesus. Hmm. No. No, what? No. I don't, don't know him. Never known him. I don't know him. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Two epics, both under the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Two kings, which looked and were very different. Saul had no idea when he got up that morning and his father told him to take the servant and go out and look for donkeys that what was actually taking place now was a 
hugely monumental time in the history of God's people and that Saul would come back home as being the reigning, ruling, first ever king of God's people. When Jesus came into the world, he was acutely aware that he was compelled by his father to go and procure some stupid animals, as humbling as it was, taking up habitation on the very world that he himself had made. It would be the beginning of the end of his having stepped down from his throne in heaven, but it would be the greatest accomplishment, and that demeans it to even say that that way, but it would be the greatest thing ever in the history of humanity and would bring eternal life for all who believe. Saul's coronation was the beginning of his acceptance by the masses as king. For the Son of God, it was the beginning of his rejection by the masses as the king of kings. We go back to what Danny was talking about in Kosovo. An Islamically ruled and Islamically run nation. And the things that Tim and Karen come back here with and wow us with and how the national authorities and the Muslims are, are part and parcel, unwittingly I guess to them, they're part and parcel of the Christian outreach and ministry in huge ways. Like Danny said, only God can do that. You know how we need in this apostate nation with so many apostate, that means wayward and so far from the Lord churches, we need that realization that the king is on the throne. But oh God, Hosanna. And while we may plead, as I seem to be doing more and more frequently and very rapidly in succession with how rapidly it seems our nation is going down the tubes into the dumpster, My plea for Hosanna. Lord, take us up. Bring it. Get us out of here. The scriptures tell us. It shows us right into the heart and the mind of God. It says that the slowness of God, paraphrasing, to come back and do just that is because of his profound mercies that he desires that no one perish. And so we're going, Lord, come back, man. I can't take it anymore. And you know what? That may sound arrogant. And and let's face it. We know that we are all saved by grace. And we are just as nasty as everybody else. But by God's grace, He He has illumined us and He's enlightened us. And we understand that. But the fact of the matter is, if you remember back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I think the phrasing is, in, in probably in the King James perhaps, is that their souls were vexed day and night over the the nastiness and the filth that Sodom and Gomorrah had become. And so, oh God, we know it's your timing. And it is of your mercies that we are not consumed, and it's by your mercy and grace that you have not yet come back. Because once you do, that's it. And how many would be lost? And how many will perish to a very real Christless eternity? God's ways are not our ways. 
Personally, I'm glad about that. Oh, I get frustrated with that. But I am glad about that. How many times could he have come back in our lives, your life, your life, your life, and you hadn't yet been brought into the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Different perspective altogether. Two kings, two epics, two vastly different outcomes. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Paul, how many of you come on up? Paul's one of our faithful elders here. Yep, make sure it's on. Let me have you stand. Let's pray. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us this morning and just showing us your immense love for us and your how deep you are, Lord, in all that you do for us and your endless knowledge, Lord, more than we can even comprehend ourselves, Lord, and the many ways that you showed us uh, today how you were working in the world. So, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to draw us to you, Lord, and to be uh, help us to be amazed every day by who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.